This is the Positive Psychology Podcast, episode 118. Welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast, bringing your earbuds the science of the good life. And now, your host, Kristen Trumpy. Hey, I am coming to you with a coronavirus episode, and the reason it took so long was that basically, um, I don't know, the first couple of weeks of how this unfolded, in especially in other countries, um, made me really mad. And um, the the drafts were just so full of rage that I thought, you know, that's not gonna really help anyone, and it doesn't really it doesn't really fit with the positive psychology concept. So it took me a while. Um, now, don't get me wrong, I'm I've not spent the last two months being mad all the time. It was just when I was working on this, uh, just looking at how some countries respond. And how some leaders do this, that made me, that made me very, uh, very mad. I am in Switzerland, as some of you know. Um, I think it hit us a little bit before it hit a lot of others, just because the worst affected areas of Italy are just four or five hours away. Um, I've been working from home, I think, since about March 7th or so. And um, I'm one of the lucky ones. I can just continue working um, as per usual, um, and it, it's just one of these moments where you just think about how random it is. I, I did nothing to be born in Switzerland, and I'm just one of the lucky ones, and I know that, and my heart goes out to those of you who are less lucky than I am. Basically, what I'm hoping to do with this um, is twofold. So I had a lot to say. Um, the basically the draft for this episode was like 20,000 words. And I was like, well, that's a bit long. Um, even if people have time, nobody has that much time. So what I ended up doing was just to split it up. So this first episode is basically some information about um, coronavirus and the response and and some issues we have to think about as a society and as an individual. Um, and the second part, the second episode is really about the psychological response to it. So that's where all the psychology comes in. We'll look at things like anxiety, depression, and how to stay kind of functional and, if possible, even happy at home. Now, although I said that I started out, you know, being feeling pretty dismayed about how this all worked out globally, um, on an individual level, just in case anybody's wondering, I've I've actually been amazingly well, and that sounds weird, but I guess it's kind of the same as when it's the other way around, right? You've probably experienced that that like the rest of the world around you seemed to be super happy. Maybe maybe it was springtime or summertime, and everybody was having fun, and you were just sad about something, right? And this is kind of the same thing. Like when I look at the world, it's I I feel dismayed and. And there are certain things that are really, really sad. But as an individual, uh, this is actually quite a happy time for me. It's it's so weird this disconnect, but it's just what it is. And I'm honest here, so I I just wanted to let you know that that's where I'm coming from. So I've been look keeping a close eye 
Um, on what's happening in different countries, um, obviously the U.S. takes a lot of focus just because, first of all, how outrageous it is, but also because half of the listeners are there and also I have family there. Um, same with the U.K., um, but I've also been um, paying attention to other countries as well. I am particularly pleased for places like New Zealand or um, Singapore, where where they just where it seems like the response was just so good that they could avoid um, having all the deaths that a lot of other countries are having. What is coronavirus? Um, I'll start with a little bit of key information. So coronavirus, named officially COVID-19, um, it's a virus that leads to dry cough, fever, and in some people, respiratory problems. Um, Iceland tested on a large scale, um, meaning they really, they are a tiny country, but but they just tested so many people that in terms of how many people live there, they actually tested the most people as far as I know. Um, and they found out that about 50% of people who get it don't show any symptoms at all, which is why it spreads so much faster than other viruses. If you think about it, if you have something like Ebola, um, you just feel so bad so quickly that that your chances to infect that many other people are just limited. You still infect other people, obviously, otherwise there wouldn't have been an epidemic. But it's it, it just can't spread as fast as something where at least um, some people feel fine. So with the regular flu, if you get it, you usually feel sick pretty soon and ideally stay home. Um, but again, with COVID, the incubation period can just be a little bit longer. So that means they calculated I think about two and a half people are are kind of ex you give it to two and a half people. You transmit it to two and a half people if on average, if nothing is changed. So it's estimated that 20 percent of people who have it need hospitalization. Now I don't know if this is if this will be true, you know, in the long term, because obviously a lot of countries still are not doing enough testing. So it's possible that it's less. I mean, that's true with everything in this episode. This is a novel virus. So it's possible that even if the things were true as I wrote them down, I, I also double-checked again certain things, but there's a possibility that it's not true anymore. But what it does is that in the instances where the virus is really serious, it seems to compromise lung function by making our lungs, which are usually kind of these fluid, you know, like they fluidly moving bags kind of thing. They're not fluid, but like they're like these bags that move, right? And they make them kind of like almost calcify them, you know, make them rigid. Rigid is the word I'm looking for. And that's why people need their breathing to be supported, um, those who are hit really hard. And that's why initially we thought, you know, that's why ventilators were in such high demand. The thing is, though, that we found, or not we, I wasn't involved. Um, scientists have found that the ventilators, a lot of people end up dying. So that's why you hear um, that they will update the info every once in a while. This is part of regular scientific discoveries, by the way. So for political reasons, people might try to frame this as scientists fumbling their response. And that's not true or fair. You can only work with what you know now. However, having said that, certain treatments are always extremely dangerous and deadly for people. You should not inject or ingest any substances that are not 
meant to be um, injected or ingested without talking to your doctor. And anything you can do to improve your immunity, that is something that you can work with and should work with at home. But not this is not the time for like strange experiments, please. So when it comes to transmission, scientists believe that transmission is similar to the flu. Um, please understand the difference. Just because something spreads like the flu doesn't mean it is the flu, okay? The virus just uses the same means of transportation, so to speak, namely drops that come from coughing, breathing, and touching infected stuff. There is some discussion now in the scientific community about aerosols, meaning that little particles can linger in the air. And the thing with viruses, though, is that you need what is called a minimum load to get sick. So scientific uh, scientists are investigating how much that is. Now, we need to keep an eye out for their findings, but knowing this should help those who are freaked out by the idea of virulent um, or virulent aerosols. You know, if you're terrified of going outside, I mean, generally, it's better to just stay inside. But let's say you have to go outside for the grocery um, store shopping. And, you know, somebody breathes, um, you know, in front of you. If they're far enough away, the chances apparently from what we know now, seem to be low. But again, this is a novel virus. It can change. We don't know. But that's what, um, and that's why they um, suggest that makes might make sense to wear masks. But based on what we know, the the aerosol concentration. You know, if you're outdoors, the the things can just disintegrate way faster because there's simply just so much more air and space. If you're in a closed space indoors. You're in a grocery store, for example. There, that's why people say, you know, wearing masks might be helpful there. Now, what should we do to stop transmission? I've, I'm sure you've heard a lot of this before. Uh, just want to cover the basics to be sure in case you haven't. Um, the more people self-isolate now, the faster this is over. And I understand that there are people who can't do that right now, um, be it for work or financial reasons. And also some employers are just... I'm not going to say the word, but you know what I mean. Um, they're just horrible. Um, they, they make people choose between their health and their income. And that is never, never, ever actually acceptable. And actually, I hope that people kind of keep tabs on who the shitty employers are who do this kind of thing. And I hope that you just boycott them. <laughs> That's honestly, seriously. If If somebody makes you choose between your health and your income, I think... If you can, you should just support their competitor. Um, going outside right now is only okay in most places if you can ensure that you can keep your distance from others. And lots of places don't make that possible. So, for example, although I said, you know, relax about the aerosols outside, if you're on narrow bridges where there's still, like, a lot of people forced to walk close to each other, or I've seen, like, you know, protests and stuff like that, even if you're outside... Everybody's kind of breathing the same air very close by each other. So so the basically the particles don't have any chance to to get to separate, you know. So plan ahead so that if you go to a grocery store or if you go out for your health walk, you you just try to pick a time when there are not that many people outside. Only go to sparsely visited places um, to do your daily health walk. And if there are crowds, you're better off working out inside. Now think about all the huffing and puffing you do. You could work out inside and then just go walking around um, where you have where you breathe normally. But, but again, this really very much depends on population density. There are some places where there are just drastically less people. 
Um, for example, what you can do in New York City um, is, is, you know, you have just have less freedom now if you're in New York City because there are just so many more people or in, uh, I don't know, Mumbai, although I think they have a complete lockdown, so I don't think that's going to work out, than if you're in a place that just has less people. I see also that some people are, you know, they insist on going to church because they think, you know, maybe it's some kind of evil plot. And there are online church services. Um, these things exist. And, you know, think about the fact that I think most religions somehow emphasize this idea that we don't know everything, right? And this idea of humility. And even if you think this is some kind of plot, um, what if you're wrong? What if you are the one who actually passes it on to people that you care about and pray with? So, you know, let's just not do that. If you have no choice and you have to leave your home because, let's say, you're an essential worker, I beg you to take the necessary measures to keep yourself and others as safe as possible. Now, I recognize that in some places that is not possible. And I think we have to send a very strong message um, where we distinguish between people who are just being selfish and or dumb and people who are like, listen, I, I understand how important these things are, but you know, my, in my, where I live, there are no masks available or, or in the hospital I work, we don't have enough materials. So that's why I can't do what I know is right. And I think it's very dangerous if we just go and kind of blame people for, you know, maybe not adhering to certain standards that we think they should, although they they really couldn't, you know, they don't have the means to. But I have a zero mercy for people who are just entitled and and are just like, I need a haircut and stuff. I have zero patience for that, quite honestly. Wear masks, but only if you're somewhere where the health professionals have enough. Um, and if that's not the case, makeshift masks made out of scarves or other textiles are better than having no protection at all. And this would be a great moment to mention that black folks would love to follow these rules very much, but often can't because people, mostly white people, call the police when they see masked black people. And this is just... This was a bitter laugh. This was not a laugh that I find it funny. It's just, I cannot believe we're in 2020 and this stuff still keeps happening. And on top of that, actually, this crisis is already disproportionately killing and financially hitting black communities way harder. Um, so don't add to their misery with this kind of racist behavior and, you know, getting the police on them for just existing in the same space that you do. Please just don't. And if you're, if you're not that, but your friends do, please call them out. You can call them out nicely. You can, you can tell them, you know, in a, you don't have to start some kind of war, but please just do it. Interestingly, the safest thing you can do is to act as if you already have the virus. And that way you really think about how to touch as little surfaces as possible, how to maintain the six feet you want to maintain and wash your hands frequently. Now, if you're a very paranoid person, this may be not the best idea, as with everything in this podcast episode and with the podcast in general, just take what, what seems helpful to you and leave the rest. Sadly, there are some government officials who are unable to distinguish between their own egocentric needs and what needs to be done for public health. Now, it is essential that you pay attention to what countries and states have actually 
um, slow down the spread and what they have done and not just to blindly follow someone or be loyal to someone just because you like them or have voted for them. Um, some countries or states like to pretend that they're doing great and almost boast with their low numbers, but you should, you know, be a bit skeptical. Very often when that happened, it is that places have low numbers of tests. So obviously, if you barely test people, then nobody has it. Wow, great performance, right? So don't fall for this. You can Google the countries you are interested in and something like COVID testing per million people. And you will find Google's numbers, but you will also find, for example, Our World in Data, um, which is a really good source, ourworldindata.org. I can recommend that. And about washing hands, it's not enough, but it's definitely a good practice to use regularly. And the reason is, I think um, some people might not know this, but the reason is that the virus is packed in a fatty sheath that protects it. And soap destroys that sheath and the virus dies immediately. Soap is the skin buster of the virus, so to speak. Sneeze or cough into tissues that immediately discards, and then go wash your hands again. Try not to touch your face. Personally, I've had a hard time doing this, which is why I've stayed indoors pretty much all the time, um, because I'm just like, okay, it's just too risky. I'm too clumsy with this whole face-touching business. Um... I do go out to buy groceries, but I try to plan my trips in a way that I go way less than I normally would and um, use the, you know, wash my hands when I go out, use the hand sanitizer when I go in, use the hand sanitizer when I go out and use the touchless paying options. Um, those are just a couple of things that I do. So we've heard it a lot, but what does flatten the curve really mean? So I'm sure you've heard the expression flatten the curve, but might still be a bit unclear about what that entails. Now imagine that where you live, they have 50 hospital beds each month. If a low number of people get it, there will be enough hospital beds for everyone who needs them. In our example, no more than 50 beds should be occupied per month, right? If however people insisting on going out in one month, um, the need for hospital beds might suddenly be up to 300. So over a time of six months, needing 300 hospital beds is not a problem. But within one month, that would mean a shortage of 250 beds. Flatten the curve means trying to keep the need for hospital beds and medical personnel and ventilators and everything else that's needed below the capacity that would exceed what is available. And if we don't succeed in doing that... Um, Healthcare professionals need to decide who gets a ventilator and who doesn't, who gets treated and who doesn't. This also makes it more likely that the healthcare professionals get traumatized, which of course impairs their ability to keep on fighting this in the long term. By now I've heard um, a certain governor say that they open up because they have increased the number of hotel beds, no hospital beds, not hot hotel beds, God, not the same thing. And just for the record, the goal is not to fill the hospital beds. Preventing death should still be the main goal. Understanding death rates. We are overall pretty bad at understanding statistics and acting accordingly. And I'm not insulting you personally. It's just that if you take a thousand people, um, a lot of them are just, you know, they might know what, you know, 50% means, but you don't really feel it. 
And the death rate of COVID varies according to each country. So while the consensus is that it's between 1% to 3% overall in a global average, um, there are places like Italy where it's somewhere between 9 to 12%. And what is super important to understand is that this varies wildly across um, different ages. Many things factor into how many people die. The more older people there are, the more likely people are going to die from the virus. The more a place uh, relies on public transport, the faster the virus can spread. Now, to be clear, I've used public transport all my life. I believe that it's that's also one of the reasons why my own country, Switzerland, um, was hit relatively fast and quickly um, than if we would prefer more individual ways of getting to work, such as cycling. Um, for some reason, men are more likely to die than, hum- uh, than humans, than women. And science does not know why, but there's a suspicion that it might have something to do with maintaining overall immunity. So I don't know if, if things are like guys smoke more or something along those lines, but this is a hypothetical. We don't know that yet. Do enough resources and trained personnel exist and can they be moved quickly? How quickly and how strictly were people told to shelter at home? And if the death rates I've mentioned don't strike you as a lot, I like to use the example from a random Twitter guy I I encountered. And he basically said something along these lines. Imagine I offer you to have a skittle. There are 100 skittles in my bag. Three of them make your lungs collapse and you die within a week. Now, the death rate is lower in younger people. However, people get confused there as well. Lower doesn't mean inexistent. Um, Instead of three deadly skittles, there's maybe just one, but it's still risky. And remember that corona is not the only thing going around. You can have a regular flu and then get corona. You can have pre-existing conditions that you don't even know about. You know, maybe your, your blood pressure is high. You might have undiagnosed diabetes or, you know, a little bit of asthma or whatever. If you think it's still okay to live your life as usual with mortality rates that we've seen, what would change your mind? Think about it. If you walk around carrying the virus, even if you have no symptoms, people who are close to you um, might get it from your breathing. They might touch something on public transportation or return some Fruit Loops that you touched to the shelves. Depending on the surface, the virus can survive for quite a while. I'm not going into how long because that's been just one confusing train wreck. So let's go back to our thought experiment. What if the death rate were 10%? Would that change how you live? Remember, 1 in 10 who touched something that you touched um, might actually get it. What about, and die? What about 20%? What death rate would change your behavior? Now, there are some issues and frequently mentioned objections in this whole debate, and I want to talk about them. So the first is obviously, although I've heard less of it now, but it's the flu kills more people. Well, the flu is not on vacation. The flu and all other deadly viruses are making the rounds anyway. This is additional threat and does not anyway minimize um, people's suffering. If you think about it, over 55,000 deaths have been recorded in the U.S. alone, up until the time of um, recording this. And just to compare, 2,977 people died in 9-11. And this has already taken more lives than if 9-11 happened 18 times. 
And while it may have been true that in absolute numbers the flu has killed more people, the corona death toll is rising rapidly. Remember, flu had a head start. Um, it starts every, you know, autumn or winter. And the virus, coronavirus, has only been really around in a lot of places for like six to ten weeks. So that's not that much compared to how long the flu's had. And by the time that you listen to this, it's very likely that the numbers have changed again. So, yeah. There are people who say, I am young and fit. I used to think like that, and frankly, I'm appalled and ashamed. Now that a past me used to think it was okay if older or immunocompromised people die. And I have to thank disability activists and probably everyone engaged with different social issues that I follow for ending my stupid, selfish, and extremely dangerous perspective. This is a huge di- there is a huge difference between people succumbing to conditions which were unforeseeable and things where we as a society were just negligent. Sure, we all need to die, but asking others to sacrifice themselves so that you can keep you know, partying or eating Baskin-Robbins, that is just very, very problematic. And it always carries the assumption that others will be sacrificed, not people who have names that you know, who have lives that you know or care about. And that is a very problematic stance to take. Everybody has to do what is right for them. Now, normally, in regular life, I am a big proponent of people listening to their own needs. I always say, hey, listen to yourself. Um, Try to not always conform to what everybody else is saying. But this is not business as usual. All psychology is useless if we don't realize when a concept is helpful and when it actually harms us or others. There are some people, as with everything, who say this was orchestrated, and I've heard all kinds of theories. The Chinese did this to screw over America. America did this to screw over China. Bill Gates did this to earn more money. The pharma industry um, did this to get you know, money from the vaccine. Um, governments have coordinated this to shut down a lot of protests that were going on in the world. If we think about it, three, four months ago, a lot of places in the world had very, very serious protests and, and this was in the Middle East, it was in um, South America. So yeah, who knows? You know, personally, I don't have the time or energy to investigate these kind of claims. I would rather we find solutions for issues which are pressing and definitely happening. That does not mean that there was no foul play. I just have no idea. And I think that even if this was started with criminal intent, um, big if, we need to control and contain what is happening instead of frittering our way around with blaming and speculating. Um, because every kind of every day and week you lose just increases the death toll. Um, unless I go to church, God will be mad or evil or, you know, evil will have won. And then there's this issue that's particularly urgent for folks from the U.S. And I've seen things where people say they won't get the virus because they're protected by Jesus. Um, But think of it this way. There are tons of things that God is not directly involved with in your daily life. If you let them scan your stuff at the grocery store, you're relying on science. If you use planes or cars, you're relying on science. If you brush your teeth, you're relying on science. God and Jesus don't mind you doing all of those things, right? So, In fact, you probably wouldn't jump off a bridge relying on God's wings or Jesus's touch, right? 
So that's that. Um, then there's the issue of optimism. Um, optimism is a shitty strategy. And now I'm talking specifically about this COVID situation. I once read a quote for which I sadly didn't find an attribution. I looked for it, but I didn't find it. But it was something along these lines. The overly optimistic and the overly pessimistic people are the same. Both have very little reason to change their behavior. One thinks that nothing can happen and the other thinks we're all going to die anyway. Optimism is a great trait to have when you are in self-isolation or you're trying to keep yourself and your family happy. It's a terrible trait to have if it makes you think that doing nothing um, or not changing nothing works and, you know, everybody just keep calm and carry on. And, you know, the other thing is also that it can feel really displaced. It's wonderful if someone is doing fine and is financially secure. And, you know, I am one of those people. But you kind of have to be sensitive about blasting it out into the world. Um, and especially if you lead with things like good vibes only or similar slogans, it communicates to others that you are not actually there for them. Remember, your intention is not what others take into account. It's their interpretation. So be a bit cautious with your optimism. Optimism definitely has a place. I just want you all to be sensitive about it and not assume everyone is on the same page. Even if people are in need of optimism, we can approach them cautiously and then supply them when they're ready instead of, you know, shoving it in their throats. What to expect? Um, now, disclaimer, I can't see into the future. I'm no epidemiologist, but here's what I expect could happen based on what I've read so far. Um, I understand that some people might find this information upsetting, but there's a trade-off to be made. On the one hand, if we scare everyone into mental paralysis, things will be even worse and lots of people will get anxiety attacks or depression. And that is, you know, quite a bad outcome and we don't want that. However, if we are not aware of different scenarios, we might severely misjudge the situation, which can have all kinds of terrible outcomes as well. And it is important that you pay attention to yourself in this time. If you feel like this leads you down the path of having anxiety attacks, skip ahead a few minutes or skip the whole episode. That's fine. Now, what to expect in the future if things go well? So if things go well, um, you would live in a place where things are managed well. And here's what I think could happen. Safe and fast testing is available on a mass scale, like, for example, in South Korea. That way we know exactly who has the virus and how they can be isolated more effectively. Even if things go well, people and business will suffer and will suffer financial hardship this would ideally be mediated by political bills which make funds available to those in need and ensure that people who just recently lost their health insurance can keep it during the pandemic. The goal to flatten the curve is achieved. Um, the hospitals are at capacity or slightly under, but things are still okay because the curve is flattened enough to ensure that there's enough materials and medical personnel. People find and share productive ways to stay safe healthy, and perhaps even happy in their homes. Vulnerable populations such as the homeless, people suffering from domestic abuse, and health personnel are given support and concrete help. Unemployment and other benefits are made available to a wide range of people, and those claims are processed fast enough so that people can actually pay their rent and their bills. 
Um, even in this happy scenario, some people will get very ill and some will die, but at least the numbers can be kept reasonably low. We might get lucky and the vaccine that scientists expected to take at least 12 to 18 months, um, you know, maybe they, they find it faster. Who knows? Again, this is all about what could happen. It's not about what will happen. If things go moderately well in the future, um, we just have to acknowledge right now that even that even in the real world, supplies in a lot of places are running pretty low. So hospitals have to come up with some ways to compensate for missing materials or to make up um, existing materials go longer. And maybe one way of doing that would be to kind of look at areas that haven't been hit and that could afford to to donate, you know, either donate masks and stuff like that or um yeah, something along those lines. Um, in some cases, this might work, but in others, it will be dangerous because people die from lack, from lack or unsafe resources. Lack of resources are unsafe resources. Companies and people with funds find ways to ramp up the production of ventilators or whatever is the most promising medical machinery, masks, and test kits, but that takes time and temporarily all systems would still be overloaded. Concretely, this means that even if you have other non-COVID-related conditions, chances are that your treatment would be insufficient or subpar in other ways. Extra precautions would have to be taken otherwise for routine procedures, um, such as giving birth, to go well. One tricky thing is if things go well or moderately well, um, people might start getting antsy, and I wrote this a few weeks ago, and now we're seeing it, right? So staying home for four weeks or seven weeks is one thing but once this has been going on for a while the realities marts start to sink in and the pressure to return to real life or regular life will be more and more and higher and higher and if the growth of the virus spread hasn't been stopped this is a bad idea to just go back to business as usual and calls to ease up will get louder remember i wrote this a few weeks ago Unless the virus is under control, that would just mean that everything we've already done was useless because the outbreak has been postponed and not enough um, for and not enough for it to go well. You can do your part by explaining this to those who get twitchy, who you love, and support them in ways so that they can stay home for as long as is needed. Having said that, there are very important trade-offs to consider. Um, if, say, the food supply is threatened, things could get very dark very quickly. And truly essential businesses have to operate and we have to do whatever we can to help them do it safely. I don't want to terrify you all. Um, however, in this case where how we all behave makes a big difference, I want to be clear that what will happen if we don't do the right thing, which is whenever possible to stay home. And the final scenario, if things go terribly... Um, the virus could be just making the rounds. When we look at past pandemics, they were not necessarily resolved in a couple of months. If, for example, those who had it can get reinfected, and there's um, scientific debate about that, um, there's a lot of hope that we can use you know, antibodies and to kind of say like, oh, that we know exactly who had it and who didn't. Um, but this is only useful if there's proper immunity. And if there's not proper immunity and people can get reinfected really quickly, then it might take a while. Um, so again, this is just a worst case scenario um, that I 
thought of. Um, and if there's immunity after having recovered, we still don't know how long that immunity lasts. Again, it's hard and other concerns can, can become more pressing over time. But if immunity is not possible or only for a very short time, we'll have to figure out what that means. If the healthcare system is overloaded for a long time and there's shortage of materials for longer periods of time, the number of preventable deaths, especially from non-COVID issues, could increase. And I read in various articles, but I don't remember the source, I think it was maybe the Atlantic, um, that with Ebola, more women died giving birth than from the virus itself. And this is an awful thing to, to learn, but it's those kind of realities that need to be considered when considering our next steps. You know, if you're struggling to think about, you know, why do hospitals need the funding they need? It's important to know that these things are never just about COVID, right? If quarantine and other special measures drag on for very long, the economic fallout could be huge. Um, I think already we know now that it's, I think at this time that I was writing this, it was 26 million people in the U.S. had filed for employment. And that was just the ones who actually got through. Um, it is believed that there are millions of people who didn't, who couldn't because the websites crashed and the call centers or that, or, you know, the people who are meant to process these things just couldn't keep up with all the demands. Um, so of course there might be a horrible domino effect once that people can't pay, you know, their rent and their gas bills and all of that. And even if you live outside the U.S., remember that most economies are largely dependent on international trade. So even if your country weathered the crisis quite well, they're still going to feel it if they can't export their goods and services to other countries. I am going to stop here because too much of this kind of information can lead to anxiety and depression, and that's not my goal at all. If you have listened to this podcast for a while, you know that I'm usually on the optimistic side of things, but I just really want to hammer home what happens if those of us who could stay home but just don't want to continue, you know, giving into those impulses. Here are some issues to look out for. Now, I'm pointing out these things because I think depending on who you are and where you are, you might be able to help um, be through donations, supporting the health workers in your own life, or voting for a more competent representation. Um, material resources are scarce. Um, scarce. Um, doctors needing to share masks and stuff like that can lead to all kinds of health problems, not just the spread of the virus. Healthcare workers are people who have emotional needs, and you can suppress all of that um, for a while. But after some time, exhaustion will set in. Sadly, I've already read about, you know, doctors committing suicide even because they were just so shaken by, by what is happening and also by things which are preventable, you know, um, where just for political reasons, they are not given the materials they need, not for actual real reasons. We also have to make sure that even if they are not exhausted, that they can rest enough, that they can, if they get sick, that they can actually um, sit it out and come back, you know, then there's trauma. Medical tr um, personnel might be used to seeing people die um, 
this is basically seeing people die at the rate which is similar to a war, um, in some places at least. So all of these things coming together can can lead to really long-term health issues for healthcare workers, uh, mental health issues specifically. So that's that. Um, I want to be very clear about one thing. If you're sharing memes now about you know what heroes healthcare workers are, please respect them and other essential workers enough to grant them basic rights, respect, and a livable income when the time comes to vote. And in summary, only if we take care of our health workers can they take care of us um, in the long term. Insufficient labor protections is another issue that can accelerate the spread. So if people's resources of income dry up, but the bills keep coming, they have to go outside. They have to spend time in pl- uh, working in places with lots of people and do whatever it, do- um, it takes to do their job. And if people's health insurance is tied to their employer and they're laid off, they don't have health, health insurance at the precise moment when they need it, which is now. And if you think that's not your problem, then ask yourself what happens when you know, the foods you consume and the services you consume are prepared by people who are sick and have actually no business working, but have to, because otherwise they couldn't buy their own food. Then there's, of course, politicizing. And um, my God, um, as someone who's fairly scientifically minded, I am absolutely sympathetic to all the outrage that I'm seeing. The idea that political games kill people in ways that are presentable does make my blood boil. Um, In fact, I've been working, as I said, on the script for a long time, just to kind of filter down the language that was, yeah. So sharing videos of, you know, the newest way of how dumb your governor, your president, or whoever is, it, it might feel cathartic in that moment. But there are different things that I want to say to about that. One thing is that it is a very old um, trick that, you know, humans across the spectrum of absolutely everything use this trick of a diversion, right? So you have, it's basically the fundamental way of any magic trick. Any magic trick you've seen usually includes some kind of diversion where all your attention goes to one place and then something is happening in the background. And, you know, Again, I'm not into conspiracy theories. They don't interest me that much. But what I can say is that when a lot of attention is focused on one thing or one person, um, things can happen in the dark, which are otherwise not necessarily, wouldn't necessarily fly. And it's the same reason why, you know, for example, in times when there's a World Cup, politicians do a lot of shady bills then because they know that people, especially people like me who just, you know, they love soccer and they're like, hey, this is the three weeks every two years when I get to just focus on soccer and nothing else. Um, That's when they pass some of the shadiest things. And that's what something we have to look out for. And I think it makes sense to instead amplify experts who actually know what they're talking about and have pragmatic solutions. Um, give attention to food banks and others who are helping people get through this, get attention to the companies which are treating their workers right instead of sharing outrage. Um, Consider ways to order essentials from them or at least put them in your good 
list for later when things open up again. Make landlords famous who help their tenants um, through this difficult time. Then when it comes to politics, it's really a huge act of straddling health, human rights, and the economy. And there are no simple solutions with a lot of these things. We do have to make sure that the economy works. If supply chains collapse, the effect will be disastrous as well. And, you know, instead of maybe people dying of COVID, there will be more people dying of suicide um, because those rates, I think, tend to go up when um, unemployment is high. So... Please understand that helping the economy can mean lots of things. Just because it says coronavirus bill doesn't mean that it does what it says on the tin. Now we're seeing that there are cases where, you know, money marked for small businesses somehow ends up in the pockets of really big chains. And this is a time when, you know, everybody's kind of focused on trying to survive. But it's really important that we don't let things like that fly. And... That you, if you're a customer of a chain that takes money away from actual small businesses and people who need it, you know, tell them that you will that you don't want to have business with them anymore until they give it back. Stuff like that makes a difference. And if they hear it often enough, they get they get scared and they tend to move. It is likely that something or someone will go bust, and the question is who should? Someone or someone will get freebies. Again, who should? From the financial meltdown in 2008, we have a pretty good idea of where bailout money tends to go. And do you want a repeat of that? Because if not, you have to be very vocal and let your local reps know that you're paying attention. When trying to entangle what is happening, look at who would profit from what. Um, Blamers um, are often not those who actually save lives. Blaming and criticizing is not the same way same thing, by the way. So if somebody who has power to actually move resources and coordinate relief efforts spends most of their time blaming others, they are very likely trying to deflect attention from their own actions. Criticizing and holding people accountable are necessary to this process. Journalists and others who can question things should ask difficult questions because being accountable often helps people to make the right decisions. However, If we just focus on some petty wars and spats, that might be the most entertaining thing, but we're also not focusing on actually helping real people. In lots of countries, more than 50% of the hospital staffs are foreigners. And I think that's something important to think about. It is safe to say that without foreigners, many places would already have tapped out. Um, And whoever is able to own up to their own mistakes and do better in the future really should be credited for that. If your reps are using this time to take rights away from vulnerable groups such as the disabled, the poor, and minorities, please look for their political challengers and vote for them next time, even if they are unknown. If it turns out that supplies were distributed according to anything but need, um, investigations should be open. These things are not legal in most places in the world. So trading ventilators for favors or ass-kissing is despicable and should be punishable by jail, Um, no matter who does it. You know, there was this case of insider trading. Um, You might have forgotten because it's only about three weeks ago, maybe or four weeks ago, and there was just so much going on. But it was shown that basically Republicans and Democrats were shown to have done insider trading. 
which means that they had information about coronavirus that the public did not. And they said it was not a thing, but they were selling their stocks um, and publicly pretending that that's not something that is relevant in any way whatsoever. And, you know, I don't if people do that, they, they should be voted out and insider trading is illegal. They should be freaking charged. I don't care if they're Democrats or Republicans. It truly doesn't matter. That's just behavior that's not okay, no matter who does it. And and that's, I think, we have to get better with doing that. You know, that we, that we don't just say, oh, um, we're upset with politicians if they're from the party that we don't like. We also have to, to um, hold our own people accountable. And we can't be taken seriously if we say, oh, this issue is fine if it's, you know, my political opponent, but it's, but it's absolutely not fine the other way around. You know, like that just makes no sense whatsoever. Now, this is dying down a little bit as well, but I still want to pay attention, you know, kind of cast an eye on it. And that's the whole Wuhan or China virus debate. Now, Asians and people with Asian heritage have been suffering disproportionately from racism during this crisis. Um, people stopped eating at Chinese restaurants while they were merrily chomping down on pizza and pasta. So it's definitely not, it's definitely a racism thing. Um, people who call it the China virus are often feigning ignorance, like, oh, but that's where the virus is from. And I got two things to say about that. People who do this are often more interested in blaming and deflecting responsibility than they are in solving the crisis. And you don't have to believe me. You just have to observe what the same people do and share and say, right? Are the people who are actually helping by coordinating efforts doing it? Usually not. They don't have time for that. And are the people who say it's a big deal all non-Asians? That's a big thing. You know, whenever people say, oh, something is not important, or oh, something is not real, or oh, we didn't mean it that way, it's often those speaking up who were not involved in the first place. Number two, if we want to play the game where we nationalize everything, maybe we should look, take a look at where the doctors and nurses who are fighting this are coming from. Actually, a large percentage of doctors and nurses are from Asia. So yeah, there, there are probably way more people fighting this who have Asian heritage than a lot of other places. So yeah, maybe not. And number three, if we want to play the game of that, everything should be named after its origin, we would have to do that with other conditions, diseases, wars. Imagine if, you know, we get to a place where suddenly everyone's bliss. You have to pay for um, places where you create a damage for no good reason. That would, you know, that would be something, right? And and then it suddenly wouldn't necessarily always be China, right? So yeah. In times of crisis, vulnerable people are often made to suffer. And the disabled are a good example for this. They're the first to be thrown under the bus as some strive to invalidate their rights, pretending that they are standing in the way of making everybody else safe. In truth, it's often the other way around. The reason we have, for example, exit um, ramps and things like that are often because of wheelchairs and because of disability activists, but they are then used by everybody else. Um, so I think if they fight for us, we should also fight for them. And bills which on the surface are called corona 
but actually take away rights from other people, they should also, we should be very mindful about what are people trying to slip in and or strip out. Another example is black folk. Even without corona, a black mother is, depending on where she lives, two to six times more likely to die at childbirth than a white woman of similar income levels. So even if, you know, it's a very rich black woman, she's still more likely to die giving childbirth, you know, during childbirth. And black people are less likely to believe when they go to the doctor. This is also true, by the way, by women. Women overall are less likely to believe when they go to the doctor. But with black people, it's just the double whammy. So if you're a black woman, you're just basically screwed. And we've sadly seen this in the paper. A lot of black women have passed away from COVID um, despite them asking for tests and just being rejected over and over again. They're also more likely to have all kinds of underlying conditions that can make COVID dangerous. And while it's nice to clap for doctors, it would be even better to furnish them with the funds and the infrastructure they need to help everyone. Impatience, I've said it many times during this episode, but the thing with the situation we're in is that if the government chooses the right path of action, it will look like it was exaggerated. So if you know the measures we take are helpful, then the number of deaths recorded will be low. And then there will be people who say, but why did we did the, do this? And that's a little bit kind of, I saw the analogy, I don't remember where, but it was kind of like removing seat belts because, you know, there were not a lot of people in dying in car accidents. It's kind of the same issue. So that's that. So to conclude, I want to say that one thing you can do is to help others keep their cool and continue to help them see why it's important. Um, our words mean so much less than our actions. So if you stay in as long as it takes, you model for others what is possible. And this doesn't always work. Even friends who should definitely do better do really dumb things. And the upsides will often remain unknown forever, meaning that you might influence people um, to stay in even without ever knowing that you did this. So that's that. Okay, um, I'll talk to you soon, mainly in the second part of this episode, or the second coronavirus episode. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help us out by sharing it with your network and leaving a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks for listening to the Positive Psychology Podcast. We're saying goodbye with Happy Yogurt. <laughs>